Acts 14, we will read the entire chapter again. Notes a lot, but we're taking another look at this chapter to see all that God has done, and I want to consider it as a whole. So let's read the whole chapter and pray that God uses it. Acts 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentile and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, And to stone them, they learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could no longer use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "'Stand upright on your feet!' And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Iconium and Antioch. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, he had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had com- been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, They declared all that God had done with them. 
and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful and effective. We're so thankful that we get to read it and understand it and have this testimony to your amazing work among the disciples. It's such a helpful corrective because we are so inclined to believe the lies of this world, to believe that you're not at work, that the gospel and your work among us is foolish, pointless, It will never change. But God, show us the hope you have in this text. Show us that you are alive and well and that you're working among us no matter how dark it may seem or how crazy it may seem to a lost and dying world. Would you come now and use your spirit to open our eyes to see what your word has to say and help us to glorify your son in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about a year ago, um, I read a biography, an autobiography, by a man named John G. Patton. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a missionary in the 1800s, an incredible man. He was actually a missionary in, in a place called the New Hebrides Islands. Now, if you've ever heard of those places, if you take uh, Australia and Hawaii and you draw a line between them, uh, it's really close to Australia, but it would be right along that line. That's where those islands are. It's actually not that far from where the Buzers are serving, among the BM people in Papua New Guinea. But the incredible thing is that even though this was a long time ago, today there are about 200,000 people on that island, on those islands there. And about 85% of them would claim to be Christians. And they didn't receive the gospel until like 1840. And that was mainly the work of John G. Patton. He had an incredible life filled with some great things at the end, but a lot of difficulties. Within five months of landing on the island, he lost his wife and newly born son. They were sick and died, and he served most of his time on the island alone. But God was faithful to work through his life. And what I want to share with you this morning is actually what happened before he ever went to the island. Now, John Patton was drawn to missions from a young age, but when he started to get serious at an older age, and and he started to tell people that I'm going to the mission field, and I've picked these islands, these New Hebrides, uh, people started to think he was crazy. His family, his parents actually were very supportive, and they were amazing parents. Buy the book and read it for that, if nothing else. They were amazing godly parents, but a lot of his friends and other family members, and even the church, thought he was nuts. One man in particular even was bold enough to say, you're crazy. If you go there, you will be eaten by cannibals. Now, it sounds like an outrageous claim, but the people, the missionaries that tried to go before John G. Patton, as soon as they landed on the island, they were clubbed to death and eaten within the side of the boat. This was a very real fear. You could see why people would say, don't go. Sounds crazy. But I want to read you what he said. This is what he said to the man that said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your, your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They're eaten by worms. It's not very subtle. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals 
or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Isn't that great? You know, there are a lot of people back then who thought he was crazy, and I bet there are a lot of people, maybe even here, that would hear that now and think, this guy's nuts. In fact, if you talk like this, if you approach suffering in this way, our world will think you're crazy. Because you see, in in our world, the ultimate goal of life is my comfort and my happiness. We actually live in a world where we believe that we get the right to pursue that comfort and happiness in any way I, I want. We can even make up our own life and our own reality to make that happiness happen. And as soon as something interrupts my happiness, I have the right to change it no matter who it hurts because my happiness is the ultimate goal. When my wife makes me upset, I have the right to go get another wife. When I have a tough situation at the church, I can just walk down the street to the next one because my happiness and comfort is the ultimate goal. You see, in this secular worldview, there's no room for suffering. There's no way to even process it. At best, suffering is just an interruption to my happiness. At worst, it's a total disaster. There's no room for suffering in the modern worldview. That's why it has to be avoided at all costs, or just ignored or trivialized like it's not that big deal, or maybe just medicated away as much as possible so we don't have to think about it. Because suffering is this obstacle in my life. But see, Christians are the ones that are crazy enough to say, no, suffering isn't an obstacle. Suffering can be God's tool to grow me, to make me more holy, to make me more like Jesus. And because of that, I don't have to fear it. I don't have to hold back. I don't have to avoid it. Well, if you start talking like that, the world will think you're crazy. And sadly, some people even in the church. If you were here last week, you remember what we talked about, that probably doesn't come to any surprise. Because we found out that God likes to work this way. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to our perishing world. The gospel of a crucified Savior, of a God that saves life with death, just doesn't compute. It just doesn't make sense in our broken, sinful world. And then every action we take in response to that gospel seems just as ridiculous. And we as the church can be tempted to start believe that sometimes when we're faced with suffering and persecution. But the gospel isn't just foolishness to a, a, a foolishness to a fallen world. It also is the power of God to save. You see, God loves when his gospel, his people, his church, seem like a lost cause. He loves to be considered the underdog. I mean, look at the way he's worked through Scripture. Noah, Abraham, David, even the Apostle Paul and, and Jesus himself, they were all weak, irrelevant, insignificant fools in the eyes of the world, but God used them to build his kingdom. Why does God do this? Because God likes to choose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He likes to choose what is weak in the world to shame the, tr- the strong. He chooses what is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God loves to work this way. He loves to be seen as the underdog. Because when the underdog wins, God gets the credit. God gets the glory. 
And we have to understand that as we read the entire Bible and especially as we read Acts. Acts 14 is no different at all. We see the the gospel being preached and it seems like foolishness. It seems like the church church is just a, a train wreck at times. But God is at work, always doing exactly what he wants. And so that's why last week we started this three-part series that's all about the power of God to save through foolish gospel ministry. The power of God to save through foolish gospel ministry. And if you remember, last week we focused on foolish preaching. Now Paul and Barnabas went into these three towns and they preached and they actually brought division and confusion in these three places because they preached a message of foolishness, a message of a Savior that died of a God who can't be included into all these other deities, of a God that won't tolerate idolatry that must be worshipped. And they preached that message, and it it split up towns and families. But God worked through it to build a church in each of those cities. The foolishness of gospel preaching brought the work of God and the salvation of many. Well, this week, we're focusing on foolish suffering. And next week we'll talk about foolish church planning. But the the focus today is on the power of God to save through foolish suffering. Now first, I need to define what suffering is. You're probably like, what? Seriously? I think I know when I'm suffering. It's like the easiest thing to tell, right? If I'm hurting, if there's difficulty, that's suffering. Well, here's the thing. The way that the Bible talks about suffering is not the way that we see suffering all the time. I can prove it to you. Here, whenever you think of suffering, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The first thought, the first example of suffering in your life. Is it sickness? Is it it death and difficulty? Is it even maybe the loss or the, the despair that comes with accidental or unintentional things that are really just a result of this fallen world? You see, we experience suffering because we live under the curse. That's a huge part of our lives, and it's what we have to navigate as a church. But see, here's the thing. To Paul and Barnabas, when they talk about suffering, they're thinking tribulation, persecutions. They're thinking the difficulty that comes from the hands of the enemy. That's what's in their mind. So which is it? Which suffering are we talking about here? Well, actually, we need to talk about both. You can't really tear those apart. Because here's the thing, Christians will suffer for preaching the gospel. Even in our world, we suffer at the hands of our enemies, whether it be loss of job or or just difficulty or reputation or other things that we come across. It may not be death, imprisonment. It may be one day, but it's not right now. But we also suffer the effects of the fall in this world too. And Christians are crazy enough to go to places where they experience the effects of the fall faster. We put ourselves at risk. We put ourselves in difficult places to preach the gospel and to tell the truth about people, and we put ourselves and our families at risk, and that's why we suffer. And that's why Paul, even in 2 Corinthians 11, says, I've suffered from imprisonment, from being on the run from people, from beatings. Those are the things that are persecutions, but I also suffer shipwrecks. And hunger and being worried about the church. Paul suffers the effects of the fall in all kinds of ways. So that's what I mean with suffering. We don't just want to say it's just persecutions or it's just pain. It's both. It's so great that our God, our God speaks to both in his scriptures. 
in this fallen, broken world. So the power of God to save through foolish suffering. So first, we're going to look at Paul and Barnabas' foolish actions. What foolish actions did they do to bring about suffering? And second, we're going to look at their foolish beliefs. This is the interesting part. When they're, what motivates them to act in this way, to do the things that they do and suffer in such a way? But most importantly, we will look at the glorious result. How does God use the Apostle Paul's suffering and even our own today in the life of a believer? So first, foolish actions. Look back at 14.1. 14.1, we'll start there in the town of Iconium. What did Paul and Barnabas do that seemed so foolish? Verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Now just real quick, remember last week, entered together means they entered together into the synagogue, but it also means that they entered according to the same. They went right back into the synagogue just like they did in the last city, which they got kicked out of for preaching the gospel. Already not a good start, right? So they're going back into the synagogue, and what happens? Well, Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Well, surprise, surprise, right? There's a replay of the exact same thing that happened in the last town. Some are saved, some are not, and the people that are not are actively opposing the church. They cause problems again. And the way I see it, this is a massive moment for Paul and Barnabas. They have a huge decision to make. They can, one, pick to stay, to stay and suffer with these people, these Christians that are already being persecuted even after they just believed, which will probably lead to their death if the pattern keeps continuing. Or they could run. They did it in the last town, right? They could just take off and go to the next, next town. That seems like the best idea. They keep fulfilling the mission of God, right? So you would expect to hear in the very next verse that they moved on. Maybe they shook the dust off their feet, right? That's the, that's the logical thing. In my mind, I would have been they moved on to a more peaceful town, right? That would be the most logical thing. In fact, what's crazy is that Paul and Barnabas are only about 100 miles from their, their home where they grew up. Barnabas grew up in Cyprus, Paul grew up in Tarsus, and they're only within 100 miles. And the best part, it's on the way home to their church that sent them off. I know if it was me, I would just be like, hey, let's just let's go back home among family. I'll preach there, and then we'll go back to our church. Let's regroup. Let's think this thing over, because clearly God is, is closing the door here. Right? Clearly something's not right. We've got to figure this out. But they chose to stay. This is foolish action number one, verse three. So, now I know it seems like a lot to make a big deal out of this word, but it is a big deal. That word so is also the word therefore, which means Luke is telling us this is how they responded to persecution. This is what they did. They remained. What, to say goodbye? No. They remained for a long time. Do you hear what he's saying? They actually stayed to suffer. They pressed into the suffering. They stayed because of the suffering. That's crazy. That's crazy that they would even consider to do that. But God was faithful to work. Look at what they did. Verse 3 again. Speaking boldly for the Lord, 
who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They stayed and preached the word. And they preached the word boldly in the face of fear like we talked about last week. They actually decided that the mission was more important than their immediate comfort. They actually believed and trusted that God would work not in spite of suffering, but through the suffering, through the persecution, and through the pain. Who does this kind of thing? It's, it's so opposite of the way our world works, isn't it? I mean, here's the way our world thinks. If, if I'm going to go through pain, if I'm going to go through suffering or difficulty, I better get something good out of it, Right? I mean, I was thinking about exercising, right? If I'm going to go and, and, and rip my muscles and work out the gym and experience the soreness and, and getting up early or whatever the pain of working out might be for you, um, if I'm going to experience that, I want to see results. In fact, I think that's why there's mirrors all over the gym. So as soon as we lift weights, we look and see if the results have already happened, right? That's the way our world works. The end justifies the means, But Paul starts with suffering and he makes a decision that creates more suffering. I'm not taking that deal. The end does not justify the means, Paul. You got it backwards. Plus, in in our world, if you sacrifice for somebody else, it's usually to take them out of trouble. Right? Think about a fireman or, or a policeman. They run into a burning building or run into trouble and pull people out. Could you imagine a fireman to run into a burning building, pull somebody out, and take them to another burning building? That'd be the worst fireman ever, right? That's kind of what Paul's doing here. He sees the suffering, and he goes and preaches the gospel so that more people believe, and they suffer? Paul, something's wrong. This is, this is just crazy. This is foolishness. It's madness. But God continues to work. Look at verse 4. They stay to preach boldly, but the people of the, of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, that's Paul and Barnabas, and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and to Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. But there they continued to preach the gospel. Oh, I bet this was a heartbreaking decision to make for Paul and Barnabas. They stayed to suffer with the people as long as they could. When their lives were threatened, they went on to the next town and trusted, and trusted these people to the Lord. What happened in the next town? We know in Lystra, they were preaching the word. And if you remember from last week, that didn't go so well. Right? It's, it didn't cause division like they would thought. It caused massive confusion. If you remember this story, we, we start the story in, in verse 8 when Paul is preaching. He's preaching the gospel and he pauses his sermon to heal somebody. Just a great thing. He sees that he has faith. He says, get up and walk. And this man is healed miraculously. And that's the last good thing that happens. <laughs> because as soon as that happened, the people say this, verse 11. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. God's here. We need to worship these men. They called uh, Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes, and they start to bring sacrifices out there and, and worship these men. Not the way you want a sermon to go, right? Thankful that hasn't happened here yet. Hopefully never will. 
But the way I see it, too, is that they have another really important decision to make. I think they have three serious options here. One, they could rebuke the people. This is clearly idolatry. They could call out the sin, call out that they're breaking the first commandment, that they need to worship the true God, and they need to, point, and they need to trust in Christ. They could face that, knowing that that will probably lead to the most suffering. Because they're attacking their world, their identity, their religion. If they do that, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. Or they could correct it slowly. Right? I mean, after all, these people were confused. They didn't really understand. Let's just kind of say it's not a good idea, but I'll tell you about it later. Let's educate them. Let's, let's help them to understand it. And then eventually, they'll see that it was a bad thing. And then the other option, which is the one that I think would be tempting for me, I could totally see Paul and Barnabas looking at each other and going, at least they're not trying to stone us to death. <laughs> right? You know what? Let's, let's just kind of ignore this for a minute. Let's just enjoy this, that our reputation is getting built up. You know what? I know it didn't turn out for Herod well in, in chapter 12 of Acts, right? When he was worshiped and he received it, that God killed him. But God likes us better than Herod, right? <laughs> Let's just kind of roll with this and, and then maybe one day we'll get to the gospel and be able to preach. You know what they chose, right? Foolish decision number two. They chose that honoring God was more important than their immediate comfort. They chose to trust the Lord and that calling out the idolatry was the right thing to do because it honors God, no matter the consequences. That's boldness right there. That's the boldness they had in Iconium, and now they're doing it again in Lystra. So what do they do? They rip their clothes in the sign of blasphemy. And then look at verse 15. Look what Paul says. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And Paul continues to preach. He continues to point to the gospel. But look at the result. Look at verse 18. Even with these words, that's the sermon, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Again, not the way you want to end a sermon, right? No persecution. That's good but don't speak so soon. Look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. These are Jews that were in the last cities. They're taking their persecution on the road, just like Saul did. Having persuaded the crowds, now it's amazing to me that they didn't have any kind of lost in translation moments, right? They were easily swayed to persecute the apostles. They persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. What a heartbreaking moment for the church. The hopes that were on Paul, the preaching that he's already done, in their eyes, the mission is over. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Okay, can we just agree that that's foolish decision number three? There's no debate about that, right? You go back to the places you were kicked out of, back to the place that stoned you nearly to death, 
Paul had every human right to say, you know what, guys? That's it for me. I've, I've earned this right. I'm going to throw in the towel. You take it from here. I'm going home. I'm, I'm done. Right? God can save with somebody else. I'm done. I'm finished. But he didn't. He would rather die and suffer the loss of everything than to stop preaching the gospel. I don't know about you, but when I hear that and see this story, I just think, what in the world fueled this? How did he, be, how did he do these things, and, and how, what did he believe that, that motivated him to act this way? Because these, these decisions seem a little bit crazy. Even when we want to understand them as God's work, they can seem a little bit out of the ordinary and, and something that we would never do. So what fueled Paul to act this way? And that's what we need to look at next. What were his beliefs? What did he believe about suffering that caused him to make these kind of decisions? Well, this text gives us a clue about that as well. Look down at verse 21. Verse 21 and 22. This is the fuel that Paul gives the churches. The fuel that he was, was going on when he was suffering and preaching the gospel. Verse 21 again. When they had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. What were they doing? Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Oh, I bet they needed it. Right? Especially after hearing Paul was stoned. And he's here. They encouraged them. Oh, they needed that too. To continue in the faith. Wait a minute. Paul's saying, hey, keep following me as I get stoned to death. Going back to these churches that are already suffering, saying, keep following me, continue in the faith that keeps leading to all the suffering. What could he possibly say that would say, uh-huh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Good idea. What did he say? And saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There it is. There's the fuel. Paul basically says, this is just how it is for Christians, so keep going. Still motivated? Ready to preach? <laughs> Probably not, right? If you're like me, you, you see that and you start to scratch your head and go, what did Paul mean by that? Does he actually mean that tribulations atone for our sin in a way that makes us become part of the kingdom of God? Does he mean that suffering actually can save us? Bring us into the kingdom? Well, that can't be what he means. If any apostle was about faith alone through grace alone and Christ alone, it was the apostle Paul. He's already been preaching that in this text that we've started, studied today. So then what does he mean? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. We don't just have to dismiss this as another crazy idea. We have the rest of the New Testament, which was written mostly by Paul. In fact, this week I, I studied the letters of Paul and I tried to look at all the places he talks about suffering. And in case you didn't know, Paul talks about suffering a lot. You can pretty much open any letter to any church, point to a spot, and he's probably talking about suffering there. So what I'm, I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to take you to two letters of Paul to explain what he thinks is the purpose for suffering. So we'll talk about that today, and I'm, I'm giving you two kind of headings to understand that. And I think there are two that you recognize. I hope they are. Paul believes that there's two, probably more, but two main ones, two purposes of suffering are this, to develop us in Christ's likeness, to develop us in Christ's likeness. And then the second purpose is to declare the gospel. You recognize it? Develop, declare, delight, develop, declare, right? It's all over the posters and stuff outside. It's what we stand for as a church. 
You're probably thinking, well, why didn't you just throw delight in there? You know, I actually tried. <laughs> um, because Paul does talk about delight. But here's the weird part. And this blew me away when I studied this week. Delight to Paul is not a purpose in suffering. It's not. Delight to Paul is a consequence. It's a response to suffering. It's what happens in the midst of suffering. It's kind of like this. If you, if you give a gift to somebody... Right? You may give it to them for all kinds of reasons. You may just want to bless them to show that you care about them. You may want to meet some need that they have or just show them that you're thinking about them. That's your purpose behind giving the gift. But then when they receive the gift and they understand your purpose, how do they respond? They delight. They get excited. They're filled with joy. It's the same way with suffering. Paul sees suffering as this gift from God that would develop us in Christ's likeness and help us to declare the gospel. And then when we see that happening, we delight. We find joy. Well, let me show you this to show you I'm not just making this up. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans is the best book I could find. There's, every book talks about this but, that Paul writes, but Romans is the best book I can find to show you how we develop through suffering. Suffering actually shapes us and sanctifies us makes us more like Jesus. So Romans 5, try to keep your finger in Acts. We will go back there, but Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Let's see what Paul has to say about suffering. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by tribulations, right? Paul's saying we're saved by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, that's Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. See, Paul clearly thinks that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and because that's true, we rejoice. But, verse 3, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How foolish does that sound? Paul, you you're telling me to rejoice in cancer? To rejoice when I lose a loved one? To rejoice in what I have to sacrifice to stand up for the truth at work in my family? Or to move across the world? Or to take an orphan into my home? Or to care for people in need? You're telling me to rejoice in what I lose? Paul, how is that possible? Well, keep going. Rejoice in our suffering Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Already Paul's correcting our worldview, isn't he? Suffering's not an interruption. It's not something to be avoided. Suffering has a purpose. It produces endurance, and we keep going. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. You see Paul's logic? Suffering shapes us. It changes us. It develops us. It doesn't interrupt my growth. It's actually a means of my growth. It doesn't interrupt my worship with God. It actually makes me more fit to worship Him in heaven one day. It helps me see how to worship Him. It doesn't just take away our treasure in this world. It shows me what true treasure really is. Suffering develops us. How does that happen, Paul? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given 
to us. Oh, please don't miss the triune God in this passage. God's love, the Father's love, has been poured into our hearts. Well, how did that happen? Well, because Jesus was sent because the Father loved us. He sent his Son while we were still sinners to live the life we couldn't live, to die on the cross, to raise from the dead, and by faith we trust in him. But God doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just wipe away the sin and say, you take it from here. You develop yourself. You figure it out yourself. No, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our triune God, gives us this gift so that suffering, difficulty, pain doesn't end us. It develops us. So we are crazy enough to believe that Jesus suffered sufficiently on the cross to save us so that when we suffer, we become more like Jesus by the work of the Spirit. Isn't that glorious that God didn't leave us there? Well, Paul's not done. Turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. Because I know where this is going. Because this, these kind of fears are in, are in my heart. You have to understand, this, this part of the sermon was so easy to write. Because my response to suffering is, is just so wafer thin. My mind goes right to, well, Paul, you know what? That's easier said than done. You know what, I, I know that Jesus paid for my sin. I know the Holy Spirit's here, but right now all I can see is my pain. All I can see is what it's going to cost me if I make this decision, if I press into this, this suffering more, if I stay with these people and embrace difficulty. All I can see is what I'm risking, what I'm losing, and it's so hard to see the Holy Spirit work at work right now. I feel like God's abandoned me. I feel like God's just not here. He's not working in this. And so this doesn't seem to be true. But God's in this. He's in our suffering. And that's what Romans 8 teaches us. Romans 8, verse 18. Let's start there. Romans 8, 18. Paul says, For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, don't think Paul's minimizing suffering. If anybody knows suffering, it's Paul. He's not trying to say, it's no big deal to hurt. It's no big deal to lose someone. Well, Paul gets that, but he's saying the pain is temporary. The pain won't last forever. Don't be short-sighted. Don't just look at the suffering. Look beyond the suffering. Look beyond the sacrifice. Look to where it ends up. Jump to verse 28. Jump to verse 28. Here's what he says. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not just the end, not just the good things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see what Paul just did? This is where it ends. God started it with predestination. He's going to end it with Jesus. That's where it's going. That's where it's headed one day. And in the middle of it, I'm still at work. In the middle of that whole process, I'm still at work. And he lays that whole process out for us in the next verse. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is the one leading the way out of the grave here. And those whom he predestined. 
He also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified, past tense. Did you catch that? In that process, we're in the justification stage. The sanctification stage, that's, that's already, justification's happened, sanctification's happening, and that's the tough part for us, it seems. But Paul says, you know what, glory's coming one day, and it's so guaranteed, I'm going to put it in the past tense. It's a done deal in God's book. It's going to happen. God will get us there, looking just like Jesus. And suffering is a part of that plan. It's a part of it. It's not an obstacle to it. It's not going to slow God down like he didn't expect it. Like, oh man, didn't see that one coming. No, suffering is part of God's tool to get us there. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know that's rhetorical, right? If God is for us, we're not the underdog. It's not foolish to trust in him because he is for us. No one can be against us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says he already gave you his son. He sacrificed his son for you. You don't think he's going to walk you through this? Look at what he's done for you already. He's going to get you there. He's going to walk you through this suffering, this difficulty. You can find hope in him. Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Isn't that the perfect picture of Paul in this passage? And I'll bet there are some of you here today that feel just like that. To which Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you just want to rejoice when you hear that? When you read that? Whatever the world throws at us, however difficult it may be in the midst of it, God's using it. Oh, God is incredibly gracious because the suffering in our world we deserve. It's a product of the fall, and we're fallen in Adam. Think about the incredible grace of God to not let suffering just destroy us. But he uses it to shape us and develop us, to make us more like Jesus. And every loss that we have right now, every difficulty that we walk through, we get Jesus at the end. Everything else in this world is just, it's just rags that we trade in for riches. We get the hope of glory, which is God himself. Because God uses suffering to sanctify us, to develop us. That's the first purpose of suffering, to develop us. The second is actually to declare the gospel. Go to 2 Corinthians for this one. As powerful as that is, that suffering can help us develop in Christ, God does something even more gracious. Maybe not more, just gracious in a different way. He uses our suffering to declare the gospel, the goodness and the glory of God to the lost and dying world. 
This is not something we like to think about because when we like to, when we fall into pain, we want to hide. We want to act like everything's okay, like we're all put together, right? That's what our natural response is. But God says, no, your suffering is a witness. And let me show you how. uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I don't know if I said that. And if you know anything about 2 Corinthians, you might remember that this is Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. People are challenging him, say he's not a, a worthy preacher of the gospel, that he's, he's not somebody to be followed. And Paul says, you know what? Let me show you my credentials. Here's the gospel I preach. Here's what I went through for it. And he lays out his suffering, and he teaches so much, teaches us so much about what suffering is for by showing us by his example. Chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure... That's the gospel. In jars of clay. That's you. That's me. Not a firework. Sorry, Katy Perry. Not objects of unlimited potential. Feeble, broken jars of clay. There you go. There's your self-esteem for today. Jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God, again, the foolishness of the world. These simple jars of clay, God hides his treasure, his gospel in. And what could show the the feebleness of these jars of clay more than suffering? Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Oh, isn't that Paul in this passage? He's persecuted. He looks like he's done, but he keeps getting back up. He keeps going. He keeps preaching. There's some life here that's just unexplainable. He keeps dying, in a sense, and raising from the dead, in a sense. And that's what Paul notices here. And he says, look, here's the reason behind that. Verse 10, look for all the so that's. Paul's trying to give us a reason to show us why he suffered in this way always carrying in my body the death of Jesus. There's the suffering. So that the life of Jesus might also be manifested, to be made known, to be proclaimed in our bodies. And here he goes again. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. There's the suffering. So that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see what Paul's trying to say here? His suffering, his difficulty is a picture of the gospel. It's, it's this metaphor. It's like this living parable that Christ was struck down like Paul but not destroyed. Christ was persecuted, but not abandoned like Paul. And all of Paul's pains and deaths and sufferings shows the death of Christ and his life, his endurance, his hope, shows this resurrection, this life that Christ gives. It's this picture, it's this proclamation of the gospel. I think this is what Paul has in mind when he talks about this in Colossians. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I suffer for you. That's what he's saying. 
And in all my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. Wait a minute. Was Jesus lying on the cross when he said it is finished? He should have said it was almost finished? No. Paul, what do you mean? How can Christ's afflictions be lacking? Well, Christ's death, life, and resurrection were sufficient to save us. So what's left? Atonement's over. The only thing left is what he gave his disciples. Your job, our job, is to proclaim Christ's death. To proclaim that, and to do that, we will suffer. To complete, to pursue the Great Commission, to to preach the gospel, we will suffer. And through the suffering of the church, Christ is suffering as well. He's using that suffering to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, the world, and it shows God's great worth. See, suffering isn't weakness. God's using it and the weakness of it to declare the good news. Verse 15. For it is all for your sake. I suffer for you, the church. So that as grace extends to more and more people, that's the world, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I suffer to proclaim the gospel. And then look at 16. So we do not lose heart. You get what he's saying there, don't you? He says it in the negative. What's the opposite of not losing heart? Rejoice. There it is again. When I see my suffering proclaiming the good news, we rejoice. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed Day by day. There's that resurrection and death of Christ pictured for us in our life. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, at the end of the day, suffering's not pointless. Suffering develops us into Christ's likeness. It declares the gospel, the good news of Christ. And for that we delight. You see why this fueled Paul's mission? And it should fuel ours as well. But we can't stop there because we can't overlook the most important part of of Acts. So turn back to Acts. This time turn to Acts 9. We're going to do that before we go back to 14. The most important part about this text is that God works through this. Yes, God is developing Paul and declaring the gospel, but what else is God at work doing? It's actually massive to see all that God does, so turn to Acts 9 if you're not there already. And something you have to remember about Acts 9. Remember, this is the the moment that Paul is converted. Paul is persecuting the church. He's on the road. He's trying to put away the church and to kill off the church, and God graciously knocks him off his horse blinds him, saves him, and and he goes into hiding. But then God sends a messenger. right? He sends Ananias to come and, and give Paul a message. Do you remember what that message is? Look at this, Acts 9, verse 15. Here's what God tells Ananias to tell Paul. But the Lord said to him, that's Ananias, go, go to Paul. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
And don't miss this. Four. Four. That means that this is how I'm going to do that. I'm going to save the Gentiles in this way. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus promised that Paul would suffer. But through that suffering, he would save the Gentiles by proclaiming the gospel through Paul. You see, in Paul's life, the proclamation of the gospel didn't just come from the lips. It came from his suffering and what he was willing to go through for this gospel. And God used that to save people. It's still the same for us. And turn to 14. We actually see God keeping that promise. Acts 14. All the way at the bottom. Many years later, Paul goes through Pisidian Antioch, kicked out of town. Through Iconium, threatened to be killed, kicked out of town. Into Lystra, stoned nearly to death, but somehow miraculously survives. Then he has the boldness to go back to those churches to preach the gospel. And then God graciously and faithfully takes him all the way home to his home church in Antioch. In verse 27, check out what Luke shows us. When they had arrived back in Antioch now and had gathered the church together, they declared that all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. See what Luke just did? God just kept his promise. God just fulfilled his words in Acts 9 to Paul, said, he's going to suffer, but through that suffering, I'm going to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. I'm going to use that suffering for my glory. You know what? That shouldn't surprise us, should it? God seems to be a God that uses suffering to save. We can see that so clearly in the cross. For the Messiah, God's sinless Son, fully God and fully man, who had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him, a fool in the eyes of the world with a foolish errand, to walk among a people who rejected Him, who did not receive Him, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. To obey the law that they broke, to suffer persecution under the hands of the people that he was trying to save, to fulfill the law for the lawbreaker, to take the place of the criminal and die on a cross. As Galatians said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And to raise from the dead to give life to those who would trust him by faith. See, our God likes to, to save through foolish means. And what could be more foolish than suffering? And the suffering of the Messiah is how he saves the world. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He sums it up so well. Let me just read that. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. 
Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He suffered so that now all suffering that comes in your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into something gorgeous. Don't believe the lies of the world. Suffering is not a fool's errand. The gospel's worth it. God will even use our suffering to sanctify us, to grow us, and to proclaim his gospel so that others may be saved. You see, the gospel is the power of God to save through foolish suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are abundantly gracious and good. You take this mess that we've created ourselves, the difficulty and pain of this fallen world upon yourself by sending your son to die in our place to give us hope to save through suffering. And Lord, you continue to work that way today. We are saved by the suffering and the pain and the payment of Christ. And we pray, Father, that our suffering would just shape us into his likeness would help proclaim your gospel to this lost and dying world so that we and the rest of the world can rejoice and worship you. I pray that in the name of your Son. Amen.